only two certainties in life. Death and taxes. So goes the popular saying. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and what we'll discover is that Paul disagrees that they are not just two certainties in life, but three. And they're not nearly as bleak as just death and taxes. Paul teaches us that there are three certainties in life. Death, resurrection, and the reign of Jesus. I want to argue to you this morning, try to make clear what I believe the main idea of verses 20 through 28 is, and that's that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection and his reign. And I'm going to exhort you to be the church by being certain of these things. I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to work through the text according to the outline that I've given you. Uh, some of you might have gotten awkward, the 5, 6, 7, 8, again, uh, Microsoft Word does that to me sometimes, and I don't catch it until now. Uh, but that's just one, two, three, four. Uh, we're just asking the questions uh, quite simply. Who is Adam? What is death? Who is Jesus? And what kind of life are Christians raised to? Those are the questions we'll consider in light of our text this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, meet us here in this time together. Give us your spirit. Humble our hearts that we might hear from you and experience your grace. You've given us the church so that we might comfort and strengthen one another as we give honor and glory to Christ. You've given us your word that we might be formed to the image of Christ. And so we ask now that you would put all of our attention on Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look, well, context first. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians 15. We've been there. And what's happened is the Corinthians have begun to believe in death more than life. They've begun to maybe in some sense doubt the resurrection of Jesus, but, but more they're, they're doubting their own resurrection. And so that's the idea that Paul is arguing against. He wants them to recognize that Jesus' resurrection guarantees their resurrection. And so he starts out at the beginning of chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4 giving us that Christian creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He wants us to know that it really happened. And then he calls forth witness after witness, Cephas and James and the 12 and all the apostles and then the 500 plus nameless brothers and sisters who saw Jesus after he had died on the cross. He did not stay dead, but he got up from the dead bodily, physically. People could touch him and talk to him. He ate fish on the beach. He was risen. He also appeared to Paul. He changed all of their lives. And Paul was saying that this message is true. And it changed the way I live my life, and it's changed all of you, Corinthians. And we cannot abandon the hope of that message, which is a future resurrection. When Jesus comes 
back to our upside-down world and sets it right-side up for the final time. Paul continues his argumentation in verses 12 through 19, which we considered last week, and he says, if this message is not true, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, and you will not be raised. And if the message is false, if you've given your life to a lie, then you are to be pitied. If I've given my life to a lie, Paul says, I am to be pitied. My ministry is a lie. It's worthless. Your faith is worthless. It's in vain. But, he says in verse 20, the truth is, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That verse is kind of an umbrella over our section today, and we're going to come back to it. But I want to start in in verses 21 and 22. So I'm going to read those to you, and then we're going to answer our first question. Who is Adam? For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so if you don't have any theological background, you come to this text, and the first question you need to answer is, who is Adam? And why? Why does he matter to me? As many of you probably know, Adam is the first man. He's created by God, in God's image. He's created good. His name actually means, that you can just translate it anywhere you see it, as man, and encompasses this whole idea of humanity. There's actually a little play on words in the Hebrew text, and I'm going to mess it up because my Hebrew is rusty and not great, but his name is Adam, and then when you talk about all of humanity, it's like my, right? Adam, Adamai, and so you get this idea that all of humanity is represented by Adam, and he's created good. There are some things that aren't so great, right? It's not good for him to be alone, and so uh, God knocks him out, takes a rib, and forms a wife for him, and he names her Eve, and they're together, and they are naked and unashamed in the garden, enjoying life together with God. They have very simple tasks. It's uh, um, to be together, to be in God's presence, unashamed, without guilt, and to make babies, right? Be fruitful and multiply. They're to fill the earth with worshipers of God, those that have been made in his image, in addition to working and keeping the garden. And so it's a, it's a pretty good task to be called to, right? And, and this is, you've got to keep in mind that, that work is pre-fall, it's not stained by sin. So if you think of some really good times you've had working, where you've enjoyed it, where you keep a garden or something, and you know, there's just some good sweat equity that you put in, and it, it feels it's great. Uh, work prior to sin was, was all good, and there was no negative side to it. It was all a, a good sweat that you might build up when you're exercising. So they've got good work. Lives have purpose to bring glory to God. They're to be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's a fun command. It's all very, very nice. And not only that, but they are, they are God's image bearers. And they're to, to fill the whole earth with those who bear God's image. And this idea of being an image having dominion over the rest of creation. They are to rule as God's vice regents. And 
uh, to help you think about that, what people used to do back in the day, kings, when they would conquer land, is they would set up statues that were made in their image, and they put on a really high hill so that all the people would be reminded of just which king it is that conquered them and just which who it is that rules them. Likewise, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they are stewards of God's rule. They're announcing to the rest of creation that the Lord God is king and there is no other, that he is in control, he is ultimate, he is glorious, and everything that exists is from him and exists to honor him. It's all about God. The image of God means more than that, but, but not less. They are God's rulers on earth. Again, it's very good, and, and part of how they display that God is king and ruler is by not eating from that famous tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Their obedience in the matter of not eating from it demonstrates that indeed it's God who determines what is good. It's God who determines what is evil. And their respect for God's holiness and God's judgment is reflected in their refusal to eat from the tree. Enter in their pride and some scheming from the serpent. Tree. And they eat. And when they do that, it's an announcement that no longer, God, do we think you are the king. No longer are you worthy to determine what is good and evil for us. We're going to determine it for ourselves. We're going to participate in that which you told us is evil. We're going to disobey you. We're going to do things our way. When they ate from the tree, it was a declaration of war against God. And as a consequence of this declaration of war, God cursed them, put them out of the garden, because the wages of sin is death. And we have reaped that fruit. We are knit to our father, Adam, the father of humanity. He was our representative, and the stain of his sin has, uh, if you've ever got like poured wine, maybe, on like a white sheet, and there's some other sheets underneath of it, is that it soaks through and the stain gets on all the sheets. This is exactly what happens. The stain of Adam's sin gets into each and every one of us. It's in our DNA. It's, it's in our genetic makeup. That, that we are now sinners and so we do like our first father, Adam. We sin. And we do what we want to do because we hate God. And we love ourselves. We would rather listen to our heart voice. The way Adam's sin infects us is a little bit like um, somebody, if you have somebody in your lineage that has a really bad reputation, how their bad reputation might affect you. Um, I don't remember which movie it is, but Nicolas Cage is in it, and so he, he shares an anecdote that I ha highly doubt has any truth to it, but let's just pretend it's Nick Cage, and so it's probably true, who knows. But he tells a story about how he doesn't want his bad name, because he's developing a bad name for himself, to, to come to his sons, that he wants to clear his name or clear his father's name. And so he tells a story about a physician named Dr. Mudd in I don't know all the details of the story, but the, the main point of it was that 
when John Wilkes Booth, after he had assassinated Abraham Lincoln and you know, jumped down onto the stage, he broke his leg, that this physician, this Dr. Mudd, was the one that tended to John Wilkes Booth and his wounds and helped him flee. And so it became synonymous with being a traitor to one's country. And so that thus came to us the phrase, Nick Cage says, your name is Mud, right? Your name is Mud meant that you are a traitor. You can't be trusted. Now, now our Adam's name is, is Mud, kind of, right? The, the, his sin is given to all of us. We are all in Adam. All of us are responsible. We all, we all sinned in Adam together with him. We're, we're knit to him in such a way that he represented us before God. in our lives now, as we continue in his sin, continue to reject God, and continue to inherit death. Which brings us to our second question. What is death? Jim Oreck says that death is the mutilation of humanity. Death is the mutilation of humanity. And he speaks of it in terms of an iceberg. Do you all know how an iceberg works? Right, there's like a, the tip of it at the top, and then underneath the water where you can't see, it's, it's like a mountain under the water. And he says that, that physical death is just the tip of the iceberg. It's not really the worst part of what death is. The rest of it we don't often think about. But the worst part of death is the separation from God. It's the, the brokenness. It's the, the truth that we who were made to know God and live with God no longer have the capacity to know God at all. That, that we, when we are born into the world, are born as dead men and women, spiritually. We do not know God. We are without hope of knowing him. Those who were made to announce God's kingdom, his kingship, his very godness, now do not even know his name. Death mutilates our humanity. But death is not the final word. Look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made Alive. You expect in verse 21 to kind of go, since death came through a man, life comes through a man. But instead, you, Paul spells it out here. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. He's telling us what it means to have life. 
He's saying it doesn't mean some ethereal and disembodied existence. It means being raised from the dead, actually living in a way that is tangible together. And he tells us that the way this life, this resurrection of the dead will come is through a man. And he tells us in the next verse that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But what, what God does is quite shocking. He sees our situation that we've chosen to rebel against him and try to, um, we're, we're trying to run away from the reach of his arm. And he says they, they will never return. And so instead of allowing us to just inherit the curse of Adam and inherit eternal death, what God does is he becomes a man. And this isn't super complicated, but we'll step back for a second, that you, you have in God three persons that make up one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son, it is determined, will be the one who takes on flesh and becomes fully human. He'll take up residence in a virgin's womb. Rest his head in a manger. Be nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb, and raised from the dead. This is, this is shocking. But this is God's plan. What, what, he's going, what he does in Jesus, what he does in the incarnation, is what this is called when God becomes a man. I always remember it, I say incarnation. Meat you can get at Chipotle, that, that he's in flesh. And when God takes on flesh, he, he is fully God. But the other side that, that we miss often is that he, he's fully man. That he not only took on our bodily characteristics, but as John Calvin says, he took our feelings into himself. He, he has a human mind, a human body, a, a human will. He's a man. He's fully a man so that he can purchase for us or can buy us fully out of our sin. Jesus got tired. Jesus struggled emotionally. He knows what it's like to, to cry. He grew up. He grows in wisdom and in stature. And he did all this so that he could do and succeed where Adam had failed. Adam had disobeyed God, but Jesus would obey. He's the second Adam. That's what Romans 5 tells us. He's the new Adam, the new representative of humanity. And his incarnation, his being born or being created in, uh, I'm sorry, not created, being formed in Mary's womb keeps him free of the stain of sin. And then he lives his life without sinning, a perfect life, free from original sin, that earns. He lives the life that Adam should have lived. He lives the life that you and I should have lived. And he has all the, the same or similar opportunities to abandon God. Remember, he's tempted in the wilderness, and he has the opportunity to forsake God and, and worship Satan and follow his own heart and take hold of the kingdoms of the world without having to go to 
the cross, but he won't be tempted into disobedience. He succeeds. We see another moment where Jesus is in a garden, and he has a decision to make about a tree. Whereas where Adam was in the garden, he chose to go to the tree in disobedience. Jesus in the garden chooses to go to the tree out of obedience. Adam's going to the tree was the suicide of mankind, and Jesus goes to the tree as a substitute that will save mankind. Adam exchanges life for death, and Jesus exchanges his death for life. Does and is what men and women should have been what we are supposed to be. He represents God's rule and reign in the world perfectly. And what happens is, is when we put our faith in Christ, we move from and instead we become glued to Jesus, the new man, the new humanity, rather than the old one. The new humanity brings blessings and life rather than death. This is a really important question to ask yourself. Who am I knit to this morning? Is my destiny that of Adam's or of Christ's? Who is my life united with? Because if it is Adam's, the destiny is death. But if it is Christ's, the destiny is resurrection life. And the truth about, about death is, the mutilation of our human nature is that, that we feel it every day. I think typically we just think of physical death, right? But the, the kind of under the water part of the, the death iceberg, we feel those all the time without knowing it. It's the reason that we look for hope and satisfaction in things rather than God and just never find it. It's the reason we, we, we look for happiness in uh, football uh, or family or career or money or sex, trying to, to make ourselves mean something, trying to feel valuable, trying to feel like we're whole. All those things, though they work for a little while, they, they fail in the end because they were not designed to be God's. There's a, a deep brokenness in us that we, we try to fix on our own through things, or we simply distract ourselves or plunging ourselves into a great book or becoming uh, obsessed with work and other things, making sure we're always busy so that we won't find ourselves alone thinking, why do I exist? What is my purpose? What does it mean? How can I feel whole? People are more broken than they appear. seen the little mirrors on your side of your car. Objects in a mirror are closer than they appear. 
and it's the same is true with people, that, that we're more broken than we appear. And you, you know this is true. We, we live out that this truth that we are, we're like afraid of getting discovered. It's the reason that before you came here, you stood in front of the mirror and combed your hair and put on deodorant, hopefully, or um, you know, brushed your teeth or put your, your, your clothes on. One is, obviously, that's polite and that's you just kind of getting ready. But there's another side of that of, of I need to put makeup on. If people saw me how I really am, they would recognize what a mess my life is. What a mess I am. And if they saw me, here's the great fear of each and every one of us. If, if someone sees me for who I really am, they won't love me. They won't accept me. And Jesus is the answer to that death, to that mutilation of human nature. Because what happens when we're united to Christ by faith is he makes us whole. He wakens us up to the reality of our purpose. He wakes us up to the reason we were made. He gives us the capacity to know God and to be known by God. And what happens in that, as we worship God rightly, is that we see all of these other things we were trying to live our life for and never finding satisfaction in just counterfeit. That God's the only one that I can give my whole life to and find true and lasting satisfaction. He's the only one that can enter, has entered into my brokenness knows what it's like to be human and can make me whole. He's the only one that looks at me and sees me for the mess that I am and says, I love you. You are a wreck, but I love you. In fact, I entered into that mess of the world that you've made into the grave and then got up from the dead so that I could save you out of it. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. This doesn't just mean physically alive. It means having the image of God restored in us having that capacity to know God and to be known by God and to exist in happiness and in right relationship with God, having that restored. This is why the light of Christ came into the world so that we might see, believe, and be made alive. Look at verse 20. As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits just means the first part of the harvest, right? 
It's a guarantee of what is to come. God's raising Christ from the dead is a pledge to all who will follow Christ that he's going to get you up from the dead too. That the resurrection is certain. But when Jesus rises from the dead, the eternal is breaking into the temporary. ashes of this world that is passing away and that seed is growing it's growing and it's going to bear fruit it is bearing fruit and then christ will return to harvest it when it's grown in its fullness he will raise the rest of us. Jesus' kingdom is here. Right? It's already, he's already claiming sovereignty over the whole world. This is God's world. And the kingdom of God is growing throughout it like a mustard seed. The kingdom of the future that exists after this world has passed away is growing now. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're a Christian. And it has the same intent, the same purposes, the same goal for you to raise you from the dead and to make you part of the new creation when the kingdom comes in its fullness. One of the really neat things about the resurrection is um, that no, no Jews expected an individual resurrection, right? But as we mentioned last week, if you read... Some will be condemned to um, lifeless death, to a terrifying eternity that stretches out across all of time because they've rejected God. And others will be raised to life. What happens at the cross and with Jesus' resurrection is you have this event that's not supposed to happen until the end of all time, and you have it moved into the middle of history. And instead of happening to everybody, it happens to one person. So that the rest of us, those who are here now, who have faith in him, can have life. God has designed this thing in such a way that Jesus' death becomes our death. That his curse is our curse. His blessing is our blessing. And Paul says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but him who lives in me. When you're united to Christ by faith, what that means is this judgment day that's been moved into the middle of history means it was yours. It means that your judgment day before God has already happened. Christ died for our sins. And also means that just as Christ is risen from the dead,
there's the seed of the Holy Spirit that lives in you and is guaranteeing your future. You are going to resurrect just as Christ has resurrected. We get a preview of what this will look like when life overtakes death completely as the kingdom of God grows in verses 23 through 28. Start in 22. Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so Paul's telling us of this future resurrection. He's saying there's an order to it. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's been crowned as king during his ascension, sat at the right hand of God, and he is ruling in heaven. And he is going to return. And when he returns, the rest of the harvest is going to come and be resurrected with him. Now, if you're like me, you're going, but what about in the meantime? What happens if I die between now and the resurrection? Right? And this is what we call the intermediate state is the fancy way of saying it. What, what happens if I die right now and Jesus isn't back yet? Well, you go to be with Christ, of course, in heaven in a disembodied state. I don't know what that looks like. And that's really, really good. But heaven isn't the goal. Think, I'm going to go and die and be in heaven and that's, that's the end of the story. It's, it's awesome. And we have more of a, kind of the Greek idea of the afterlife, disembodied state with God, you know, on a cloud playing a harp. Don't really know what it's like, more ethereal. But heaven's not the goal. Jesus comes back to earth to make it into heaven. He makes a new heavens and a new earth. He's not just going to leave this thing. He's going to make it new. So the, the saying with the, this earth isn't my home, I'm just passing through. It's actually a little bit backwards. When you die and go to heaven, heaven's not my home, I'm just passing through because I'm going to get back to earth where God builds his kingdom and rules and reigns. We look to heaven not so much because that's where our salvation, our final salvation is, but because that's where our salvation comes from. Jesus is returning He's going to remake this whole deal. And we see a little bit of that in, in verse 24, and then I'm going to drop to 27. Then comes the end, after those have been raised, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. The, this handing over of the kingdom, if you, if you look, when, during Jesus' ascension, God hands him all rule and authority and power, and so he's ruling now, and that rule is spreading through the gospel, and then he's going to come and, and finish it. But after all is set to rights, he's going to give that authority, that verse 27, for God has put everything under his feet, that's Jesus' feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that the one who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all and in all. Big picture of that tongue twister is that when Jesus 
has accomplished his goal, the whole world will be all about God. We will see that history really is his story, that everything really does exist. It comes from him and exists for him and it goes to him. God will be all in all. Everyone will be all about God and it will be more glorious than we ever imagined. It's a little bit like um, if you've ever watched some of those house shows on HGTV. Um, you know, Fixer Upper is one that Chelsea watches sometimes. Right? They go and they find kind of a beat up house and you know the paint's kind of coming off of the walls. There's some cracks. It's not really good. They go, we're going to buy this and then we're going to fix it up. And by the end of the show, it looks like a completely different place. Looks awesome. Like super fabulous, got ridiculous appliances and stuff. Looks great. What's happening with our earth is very similar. God made the world very good. Our world became fractured and neglected, creaking and groaning. And it creaks and groans now for God to make it new in the same way that we groan in our spirits for Christ to return and make all things well. What, what he does is God comes to our earth and renovates the whole thing, makes it better than we ever imagined. It, it's somehow better for having been lost. And here's, here's the kind of mind-blowing thing. This renovation of the future, it's... It's already started in the middle of history. It started in Christ, and it's going on in you right now. God is given, he, he's hidden within us when we come to faith by Christ, the, the seeds of the future. They're growing as Jesus' kingdom is growing. They're moving. We're moving along with history to its end, the point at which God will be all in all. Now verses 25 and 26 give us a little bit of a description about how exactly Jesus' reign spreads and then ultimately culminates. must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus must reign. He reigns now. He will reign, and he is vanquishing his enemies even now, and at the last day, he's going to crush them all beneath his mighty boot. He's going to rule. And this is a wonderful truth for Christians. This is a terrible reality for those who do not know God because they've set themselves up as his enemies. They will be destroyed for eternity, and this is not a, a destruction that, that terminates, but continues on forever. It is a death that lives and lasts. The worst part of it is that it's a separation from God. Oftentimes people ask, is this fair? And I say yes, for two reasons, twofold. First, God is infinitely holy, and to sin against him is infinitely offensive and requires infinite punishment. 
punishment is just. And then secondly, those who choose hell never stop choosing it. They never repent. They love their sin and hate God. It's a little bit like if you've ever been around somebody that disapproves of what you do. You don't want to be around them a whole lot, right? For the unbeliever to be around God is to be around somebody who disapproves of what they do, what they're about. And so they don't want to be around him. They don't ever turn from their sin. God gives them over to what they want, and that is hell, a Christless eternity. Those who never put their faith in Christ are akin to the drug addict whose whole life is destroyed because of his dependence upon a substance. Even though he can see his world around him is falling apart, he refuses to give up the drug. Likewise, the person in hell refuses forever and ever to bend the knee to Christ because he loves his sin and hates God. Christ's enemies will be put beneath his feet. And so if you don't know Christ, if you have friends that don't know Christ, I implore you, implore them to turn from their sin and to trust Jesus so that they might enjoy his rule rather than loathe it. Lastly, verse 25. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Jesus will rule and reign over all, and he will slaughter all of humanity's enemies. Yet just as David went out to meet the undefeatable giant, so too did Christ come into our world to defeat the undefeatable death. Just as David knocked the giant out cold with a stone, Jesus dealt a death blow to death when he rolled away the tomb, the stone to the tomb and resurrected. And just as David walked up to the unconscious, unconscious corpse of Goliath and severed his head from the rest of his body, so too will Christ, when he returns, sever death's head from its body. Just as David came back to Israel and held Goliath's head in his hands and proclaimed victory to the shouts and applause of the people, so too will Christ raise death's head in his hands to shouts of adulation, to an eternal celebration where God is all in all, where people are no longer broken but made whole, more fully human than they've ever been before where death no longer has a sting or a victory.
this is the victory that is certain. Holy Spirit who lives in us, and it's that same Spirit that has already risen Jesus from the dead. And just as Jesus rose as the first fruits, so too shall we who are the harvest rise. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection and guarantees his eternal reign. And as the church, we need to be certain of this. We need to be about Jesus' business here, about making his lordship known, about helping the gospel grow throughout all the world about celebrating as we see Jesus' enemies fall. Spiritual and human. I'd love to see some of Jesus' enemies fall with the words, I believe. His kingdom is growing and he is coming. There are three certainties in life. Death, resurrection, and the reign of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you became human, that you entered into our suffering and our brokenness, that you endured the cross, coldness of the tomb we thank you that you saved us from ourselves saved us from the consequence of Adam's sin which is the consequence of our own sin in his position we would have done the same we thank you that you don't just save us from physical death but you save us entirely Save us from the spiritual consequences of death. Put us in relationship with you. Indeed, everything exists for your glory. Help us to look forward to the day when all of your enemies are under your feet, when death has been abolished, and that God is all in all. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.